So um, we're actually going to take a break from Revelation for one week because, you know, we just had a hurricane. And who wants to hear a sermon about judgment a week after a hurricane? <laughs> no, but seriously, every once in a while, I like to stop. And there's a particular sermon that I've preached uh, twice at Grace Life, once at the very beginning, once in the middle. And I'm doing it now because we have a lot of people, which is exciting. We have a lot of people that are part of our fellowship each week that weren't part of Grace Life a year ago. <clears throat> and so because of that, I feel like it's important for you guys to make sure that you understand why we do things the way we do. I forgot to turn the lights on, just a moment, because I love to see your beautiful faces. Give me just a minute. There we go. There we go. I mean, if I could dim some lights over certain people, I would, but I can't. So... Um, I remember we were going through the book of Mark a couple of years ago during the pandemic, and that was 80 sermons through the gospel of Mark. And on, on, on sermon 42, halfway through it, somebody asked me, Pastor Joe, why do you take so long? <laughs> so we're going to tell you why we take so long. I'm going to be looking at a story in 2 Kings chapter 22. It's a great story. But in a way of introduction... At Grace Life, we preached through Genesis with two separate series, one on how we look at Jesus and Genesis, then we did the life of Joseph. Uh, we preached through the book of Philippians. That was our very first series called The Grace Life. We preached through 2 Corinthians. We preached through Psalm 119. We've done 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the life of Joseph, the gospel of Mark. We did Jonah. We did 1st and 2nd and Peter. And now we are slowly working our way through Revelation. It's taken half a year. It'll probably take about 20 more sermons. Don't get mad. It just is what it is. And when this happens, sometimes people do ask me, why do you do such long series at Grace Life to take months and months and sometimes over a year? So they asked me this question and 90 minutes later, just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. I defined for them one of our core values. We have four of them. Anybody know what they are? They're mobile, organic. organic, biblical, and generous. I want to explain what the term biblical means. Biblical means that we let the Bible dictate what is preached, not the opposite. Being, being biblical, that word has many legitimate perspectives, but for us at Grace Life, it is one of our greatest passions, if not the number one passion. So with so many new people, I thought it would be important to take a week to explain how we teach God's word at Grace Life. So this sermon is going to get you all fired up or bore you to tears, one of the two. But either way, it's critical because this, this is one of the distinctive that make Grace Life unique. So I want to look at the power of God's word. So let me tell you what's going on in 2 Kings chapter 22. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to tell you what's happening. For generations, the nation of Israel had kings that caused Israel to drift away from God. It drifted away from temple worship, and it drifted away especially from reading the word of God in community and following it. After David and Solomon... The first two kings, or the uh, second and third kings, David and Solomon, slowly 
the nation of Israel saw God's word as increasingly irrelevant to them. And after a while, God's word, even among God's people, was discarded, stored away, and forgotten. And the impacts of this wicked leadership was bad. But then in this story, what happens is we see where God intervenes, and by his grace, a righteous man who he chooses, named Josiah, becomes king. God chose him, God enlightened him, God saved him. God was beginning the process of restoring fellowship between him and his people. And so Josiah, now king of Israel, wants to do something. He wants to renovate and restore a dilapidated temple that had been neglected and left alone. So he commands that there's going to be a major renovation of this abandoned temple. He hired the most skilled, honest carpenters in the country. Put out an ad on Indeed, said, don't apply if you're dishonest. <laughs> and so them, along with the priest, started to go through the temple to start the renovation process. They did the demolition part of it. And they go through and they start cleaning out the temple. Looking through the closets, the furniture, hidden ways and things that were put away. Do you remember in Revelation we've learned that the temple really isn't about a building, right? The temple is, a, is the place where God meets and dwells with his people. Well, something miraculous happens as they go through the temple, this neglected, dilapidated, run-down building, and get it ready for renovations. Look what happens in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 11. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money and found in the house, and the money found in the house and delivered it to the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard it, the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, a symbol of repentance and brokenness. Have you ever heard stories of someone finding precious treasures, even maybe money behind drywall when they were doing renovations? Like, first of all, my first reaction is, honey, get me a hammer. I got to check to see what's going on behind our walls. Maybe there's some money there, some jewels. <clears throat> Actually, no, she wouldn't let me touch a hammer. She'd make me hire someone, but think about this. These precious scrolls of Moses, the book of Joshua, Judges, perhaps even First and Second Samuel, seem to be lost forever, and no one even knew or cared. What, a book? What's in it? These scrolls were out of sight and out of mind for generations. And suddenly they're found by the priests as they're going through the old temple furniture. And the king is stunned. Wow. This, we didn't even know this existed. And God has preserved his word until this day to return it to us right now. And it symbolizes two things. First, God will hide his word from those without ears to hear. But he also reveals it to those who have ears to hear. Now watch what happens. Chapter 23, verse 1 through 3. Then the king ordered 
all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to be gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, everyone in Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, great and small, rich and poor. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. This is a stunning scene. And look what happens. And the king stood by the pillar in front of all the people. He's just read the book of the law and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. So as they read God's word in community, which we've talked about a lot in here, they can't get enough. Listen to me. They don't read it in bite-sized devotional meme sections. This is not topical. They are consuming at once the full narrative of the covenant that God has made with their ancestors. And its impact is powerful. They learn about the laws. They learn about the feasts and the holidays. They learn about how God forgives sin and restores fellowship, about his love for his people, all of it. My suspicion is the book that they actually read was the book of Deuteronomy because that was the second giving of the law right before the children of Israel went into the promised land. And this reading of the book of Deuteronomy sparks a movement. Listen to me, it sparks a movement personal and it sparks a movement community. And that movement is repentance and transformation and restoration. Don't we want that today? Are you here just because you want to kill an hour or are you hoping to be transformed and changed? So that's the history of today's passage. Let's look at the spiritual or the theological of this passage. Why is God's word so powerful? Let's explore why God's word had such a powerful impact that day, why it is equally powerful and impactful for us and you today. First of all, God's word is the mind of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, these scriptures that we systematically explore each week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you know where they come from? They come directly from the heart and mind of our Father. We should probably listen to them. You want to know what God's thinking? Well, his word is the place to go. So don't neglect it like the nation of Israel did for generations. Don't let your Bible get stuck in a drawer and get dusty. Don't let your Bible app be the least open app on your phone. Because it is the mind of God. You would do well to know what he's thinking. You know why else the word of God is powerful? It is, in fact, the method of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 17. How will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? 
How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed what he has heard, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the method of God. This is the method that God goes through to call, redeem, and transform you and expand his heavenly kingdom to those who have ears to hear and understand the gospel. This isn't just about audible words, but it's about explaining, teaching, reading, understanding, grasping, and it requires, by God's method, the word of God connected with human collaboration, us. God uses sinful, broken vessels like us to teach and explain his word to those who have ears to hear. This has always been God's method. It always will be. Technology won't change it. Government laws won't change it. Nothing will change it. This is how God does it. So it is the mind of God. It is the method of God. But God's word is also the power of God. Remember, this is the theological part of this passage. We'll get to that in a minute. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. I'll explain to you what that means in a moment. It's very important. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, the discerning and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The living and active word doesn't mean it's something that can change or morph into what society needs it to be. No. It means that this word, this mind of God, this method of God, it is actively, powerfully working to change individual hearts and lives in society as God calls us out of darkness into light. And he doesn't do it with mysticism. He does it with his word. Reading it, hearing it, talking about it. Look what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says. This is another reason why we know that it is the power of God. Well, because it says so. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You know what that means? From those who have faith, it is revealed to those who need it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. <clears throat> Churches do a lot of good, important, beautiful things. But only one thing the church does has the power of salvation. Did you know that? Food pantry is great. We love it. Food pantry does not have the power of salvation. Recovery ministry is great. We love it. Recovery doesn't save people. The gospel saves people. Helping our neighbor is great. We are commanded to do it. But helping our neighbor, especially those in the South who are hurting and struggling, that doesn't save them. The gospel saves them. 
And we do these things we are commanded to do, like love our neighbor, help the poor and the needy, because those things make our heavenly dad smile. But the power of salvation isn't in generosity. The power of salvation isn't in activism. The power of salvation isn't in programs. It is in the proclamation of the word of God. Okay, personal section. I want to talk about learning God's word. This was my sermon preview this week. God's word is more important to the church than its money, programs, staff, fellowship. I thought I took staff out. Those are really important. No, okay, never mind. <laughs> God's word is more important to the church than its money, programs, staff, fellowship, music, buildings, or its activism. Of all the things the church should be doing, the most crucial, listen to me, is how we handle and teach and preach God's word each week. The power of the church isn't in marketing. It isn't in innovation. It isn't in buildings. It's not in personalities. It's in the written and spoken word of God. None of these other assets or activities mean anything if the love of God's word is no longer the underpinning of a church. And this story in 2 Kings teaches us how important a thorough, thorough, not bite-sized, a thorough, disciplined, systematic process for reading and studying God's word is. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, what is it they heard in Acts chapter 2? Anybody know? It was the gospel. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So when I read, when I read that passionate response of Josiah and the nation of Israel, I got to tell you, when I was reading it again this week, I, I, wanna, I don't want to sound corny, but it, it just makes me, uh, me want to hug the scriptures close to my heart. Because what happened to them also happened in Acts 2 when Peter preached. And it is also what we have a passionate desire to see happen at Grace Life. We want to see people hear the gospel and say, oh my goodness, what should we do? As your pastor, I have an insatiable desire to recreate this exact scene each week, and I stress over it. Each week, after our time together in the Word, I desperately desire individuals and the community of Grace Life to ask brothers and sisters, what shall we do? And I feel pressure. There's a lot of good preachers out there. I feel pressure to be appealing. I feel pressure to be relevant. I feel pressure to be marketable. Maybe even controversial on purpose. And Laura, my wife, teases me about that. <laughs> and I will tell you, it is very tempting some weeks to take a timely, relevant topic that you might be obsessed about in the moment and try to connect it to the portions of Scripture I'm preaching that week. But when I do that, that can cause the message of God's Word to be corrupted. 
by social, ethnic, political, cultural, or personal bias. See, that's the trap people often fall into with Revelation, is it not? Trying to read it through the lens of a modern-day world experience. We become so tempted to insert our own postmodern agenda, even if we think it is a righteous one, into Scripture instead of letting Scripture set the agenda for us. And this approach to reading and interpreting and in teaching God's word in a way where we try to insert what we want to say into it. It's a fancy word. Don't freak out on me, but I'm going to put it up there and define it for you. It's called eisegesis. That sounds nasty, doesn't it? It just sounds sinful. The process of interpreting the meaning of a passage through the lens of one's own experiences influenced by our modern worldview. That is eisegesis. Eisegesis, frankly, is often the foundation of many Bible studies, books, and sermons, designed, the ones that are designed to address a certain topic. For example, you probably can't really teach a series, a topical series on marriage, without some sort of eisegesis. Or maybe just a series on work, or fear, or relationships an attempt to make the scripture more relevant. Look, there's nothing sinful. I want to make sure I clarify something. There's nothing sinful about a topical sermon or a topical book. Today is one. You know who was really good at preaching topical messages without eisegesis was Spurgeon. That's all he did was type, uh, preach topical messages, but I can tell you Spurgeon spent a lot of time in God's word. The problem is, is when topical becomes abused, that's when you see a problem. When you consistently approach scripture through the filter of the lens of modern culture and your life experience, there is severe danger. Often this approach neglects, this topical approach, neglects the necessary work in studying a passage because you got to spend more time on the topic than the text. And what can happen is, and sometimes you might get it right, but for me personally, if, when I do that, it can cause a very weak, random, inaccurate interpretation. Because we start with us instead of God and his word. Think of it this way. The law that Josiah found that was hundreds of years old and lost. Huh, lost. Was it relevant? It changed their lives. See, my job is not to make Scripture relevant in your life. Did you know that? You know why? Because the Scripture already is relevant in your life. Now, my job is to try to show you how and why it is relevant, not to make it relevant. See, listen, God's Word is not a life coach magazine. Better living with Jesus. That's not what it is. You know what it is? It is a complex, transcendent, unified story of your redemption. That's why at Grace Life, we are decidedly, passionately, purposefully, unwaveringly in a different camp. I like to call, or what everyone likes to call, exegesis. The process of interpreting the meaning of a passage 
by investigating the language, culture, and context of the passage in its original setting. Exegesis looks at the text and says in context what God is trying to say rather than what we want it to say. Exegesis, though, is not easy. It requires a systematic, objective process to determine God's purpose for preserving these words to this day for us. So at Grace Life, this is not the only way to do exegesis. It's our way, or, okay, my way. <laughs> We've developed a process to break down each passage week after week Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Why, why do we do this? So you can learn how to do it for yourself. The first thing we do is we look at the historical. This is an objective, reliable interpretation that must always begin with historical, literal purpose and meaning. So without understanding and being able to articulate a passage's historical context our interpretation becomes a random shot in the dark. You might get it right. Probably won't. You risk, without historical context, imposing a meaning that feels right or seems convenient or even maybe seems effective within our modern purview. But when you do this, this robs Scripture of its power because it neglects the passage's original intention and design. To guard against this postmodern meaningless, we ask these questions each time we read a passage about the history. These are the questions. What about man? What did he do and why did he do it? What happened to him? Why and how did it happen? These questions help us understand what? Redemptive history which is the foundation for every passage of Scripture you read. This gives us an interpretation that will be relevant to all generations, all cultures, all languages, and all people, not just 2022 20, Americans. So that's one way we look at it. The next way is the spiritual or theological application. We call this theological or spiritual because it explores God in the passage. See, God is the only constant. He's the only immutable thing. He links and he's a bridge between yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God that worked with Josiah is the God that works with us. We ask these questions to understand the theological. What about God? What did he do and why and how did he do it? Once we understand the history and the theology, now we have the best chance to uncover God's purpose for us in this passage. And God's purpose can transcend any culture, any age, any experience, or any worldview. This is the magic sauce of God's word right here. And now we can experience lasting impact on our hearts, manifested by our decisions, by our emotions, and our behaviors. Because in the end, that's what needs to change, right? This is the only way it will happen. Don't you love the part of Scripture that makes you cry or repent or begins to heal? Isn't that what we crave? Well, that is the personal section. That's the fun part. This is the marketable part of any Bible study. 
But we are by nature spiritually sort of narcissistic, so we attempt to run right to this without doing the important work first. We want to go right to the crying (laughs) or the laughing. But when we are armed with the foundational understanding of history and theology, we have the tools needed for us to answer these questions. This is what we want to answer, right? What about us? What do we do? Why and how do we do it? You ever wonder where I got those questions from? Remember this earlier verse? Brothers, what shall we do? (laughs) How can we ask what shall we do if we don't know what God is saying in the first place? We must know what he is saying. One more verse, and then I'm going to close it up with this. This verse gives me a lot of anxiety every week. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead to people into more and more ungodliness. So each week, as your pastor, I do this labor of love, and it really is. I systematically follow this process so I can get you to the answer of what should you do? What should we do? By all the way, I also add the accountability from two precious brothers each week that I meet with on Friday, one at 9.30 and one at 10.30. I send them my notes on Thursday afternoon and they comb through them and they rip rip them to shreds to tell me what's good and what's bad. You know why I do that? Because I don't want to be ashamed. But I will tell you, I am comforted to know that I'm doing everything I can to follow this process because nothing is more satisfying for me than when you on your own start to use this systematic process when you read God's word. So now you know why we go through this marathon of sermon series every year at Grace Life. It's because of a couple of things. First of all, your pastor's full of anxiety. (laughs) He's, He's scared that what he will say will become irreverent babble that misleads you into ungodliness. I can't have that on my shoulders. Your pastor has no faith in his own worldview and experience to have any power to transform you. Your pastor also unfortunately lacks the creativity and wisdom necessary to develop well-marketed slick teaching campaigns. (laughs) Your pastor is hopelessly, helplessly reliant upon God's word to tell me what to say, what to tell you. And your pastor finds tremendous comfort and safety in allowing God's word to dictate the topic and the message. Because I love you, and I want you to have the same working skill set to read the truth and interpret it. You know why? It is the mind of God, It is the method of God, and it is the power of God. Dear Jesus, we love your word. We love your truth. We don't understand all of it, but we commit to you as a community that we will never be lazy with it. We will never take it for granted. We will be workmen that don't need to be ashamed. We will study to make sure that we're approved, we'll have accountability, we'll do it in community. Because Lord, we know this, there is nothing that we can do 
to transform lives. That is something that you do through your word. And we're thankful you use us to do it. We don't understand why. (laughs) But we're thankful. So Lord, at Grace Life, please help us to always make sure that we are a church that is biblical. That we never stray from that core value. Because once we do, we probably ought to just shut our doors. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. We love you. Next week, back in Revelation.